Good morning, 1030. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Love you guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us. I always love it when the, when the vocalists stop and just get to hear you guys worshiping from the front. It sounds amazing. So thank you for that. Hey, and those of you online, thank you for being a part today. We love having you here. Hey, a few things I want you to know. Um, I've been looking forward to spending time with you all week. It's been a good week. We have a, my family's having a good few weeks here. The, uh, this past Tuesday of this week, um, my, my wife and I celebrated our anniversary, which was a great day. It was so much fun to celebrate that. Thank you. And, and that applause, just so you know, is for her for putting up with me for 23 years. And... <laughs> Actually, longer than that. Um, and then in just a few weeks, we have another anniversary as our family because um, we get to celebrate 10 years here in ministry at Crosswalk. And we just want you to know we have been so blessed by you and this community and what God is doing here. It has been one of the highlights of our lives. So thank you. And if we could, we would applaud you for being able to let us be a part of this. So thank you for that. As Pastor Ron said, yeah, thank you guys. As Pastor Ron said, we are in week three of our Deep Faith series, and this series is, is um, us listening to Paul's advice to a good friend of his, and his friend is, um, is Timothy. Timothy is a young man who has been in ministry with him, and Paul has he's traveled with him, and on his second missionary journey, Paul set up a um, Paul set up a church in Ephesus. And I'm going to pause for just a second. Um, guys, the, just so you know, the notes aren't popping up on the other side. I think they're screen notes right now. So uh, he sets up the church in Ephesus, and this is a church Paul absolutely loves. But in order to really understand this church and what Paul is doing, um, we need to understand the place um, of where Paul is ministering and where he's asking Timothy to minister. And so Paul has sent Timothy there because uh, he needs someone to help lead this, long, this young church. And so when, Tim, when Timothy goes to Ephesus, this is the city he would have discovered. Um, I've had the blessing of going on two Holy Land tours with Pastor Tim's dad um, when, uh, when he was alive, Dr. Bailey Gillespie, and also with the great theologian, Dr. Richard Rice. And always one of my highlights among several was the city of Ephesus, which today is in modern day Turkey. And it's part of a Greek island tour that we would take a cruise and we would stop in the port city of Cushatasi and take a, take, um, take a bus in to go, see this, to go see the city of Ephesus. Which is ironic because in Paul's day, the city of Ephesus was perhaps the greatest port city of its day. But now, because of all the silt that's filled in, it's not even close to the ocean. But at the time, it was right on the Aegean Sea one of the greatest port cities. And more than that, the city of Ephesus was considered by many historians second only to Rome in culture and also in commerce and what the influence was that they had. This was a great city. We often don't talk about that. It was also an absolutely beautiful city. Um, because it was on a port on the Aegean Sea, there was a lot of trade that came through, a lot of wealth. Uh, a lot of people from other places, a lot of influences, as well as any port city, there's also a lot of moral challenges that you face, if you will. And so that's the city. But I want you to kind of picture, even in the ruins today, you can catch some of this. The main city through the middle of town was paved with beautiful white marble. That was the street a wide street through the middle of town, glistening in the Aegean sun. On either side of this marble street, where it was lined with columns also of white marble. And as you're walking in the general direction of the ocean, off to your right, 
you would have seen cut into the hillside. You would have seen, with marble again, a huge amphitheater, a ma massive theater built into the side. The seats of marble cut in so it makes a natural curve so that the acoustics were amazing. And this theater, believe it or not, could seat somewhere between 24, 25,000 people. And it was a theater where they had plays. This was a cultural city. It was a, a place where they had an orchestra pit in the front. They actually expanded it to make it bigger. The, it was a beautiful theater. And then on the other side of the street, so you have the marble street, the columns. On the other side, you had the Agora, which was a place people would gather where the shops would have been. But between the shops and these marble columns, you would have had a sidewalk. And the sidewalk was made of hand-laid mosaic tile artwork that you walked on. I can't even imagine how beautiful that city must have been. But then the whole reason that people came to the city in many ways was its most significant structure. And that was off towards the outskirts of the city was the temple to the goddess Artemis or goddess Diana. People would travel from all over to come and so it was quite a bustling trade in the city, selling images, selling trinkets about the goddess Diana. This, this temple had been burned down by kind of a crazed man at one point. When it was rebuilt, they, say they believed that the temple to the goddess Artemis was actually four times the size of the Parthenon. It was also of marble, massive, beautiful, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is the city where Timothy finds himself ministering to a young group of Christians. And Paul knows that he's going to need some help, some advice, and he loves this church. And so in chapter one, Paul talks to Timothy about the importance of doctrine and correct doctrine because there were false teachers that had come into this city. And it was a real threat to the survival and the health of this young church. And so he gives them that advice. And Pastor Ron talked to us about that a couple weeks ago. And then in chapter two, Paul writes to him about the proper conduct in worship, and Pastor Andy talked about that in prayer last week. And then today, Paul gets very personal and very practical, and he talks about the qualifications of a pastor, because in this young church, you're going to need leadership, but you've got to make sure from the beginning you have good leadership. And so he gives um, not only the qualifications of pastors, but of other workers in the church, and, and it's important. Right? Who's our leader? That's an important thing. It makes a difference. What's funny is in pastoral ministry, and you can ask any pastor, we always have stories. Um, even though Paul doesn't say how to be a pastor, he just gives the qualifications. Um, there are always people who know how you should be a pastor. And then among the people who always know how you should be a pastor, there's always people who want to tell you how to be the pastor. And which is, I always like to be able to hear um, good critique and things that I can grow from. And one of the stories I, I remember this past week was my second year out of, out of college, all right? I'm a, I'm a kid out of college, second year. I had been an associate pastor in a church. All of a sudden, I find myself having been moved to a church as the only pastor. And now, rather than preaching three times a year, I'm preaching every single weekend. And, and most of my congregants are, well, older than my parents for sure. They were actually more my grandparents' age. And so here I am, this young kid, I must have felt like Timothy, with a, with a church of much more mature people with much more life experience. And in the midst of this, trying to preach every week, I had so much to learn. I had somebody who was criticizing my sermons. Well, fair enough. I figured, you know, I have a lot to learn. I want to hear what the criticism is so I can grow. And so I asked, well, what's, what's wrong? And their paraphrase of how they, a much longer statement, the paraphrase was, 
The problem with my sermons is I wasn't preaching enough about distinctive doctrines because I was spending too much time preaching about Jesus. I didn't know whether to be upset or to hug them for the compliment. I'll tell you what, if someone tells you you're preaching too much about Jesus, you might be getting close enough to preaching enough about Jesus. So I've always laughed at that, and they help me again focus more always on Jesus, always on Jesus. It's got to be Jesus no matter what. Well, people always have ideas. And, and so Paul, though, says, look, leadership is important. I'm not telling you how. I'm telling you the qualifications to get the right people. And all too often, you guys, today we also hear about stories of churches, denominations, pastors who blow it, for lack of a better term. They hurt the cause to the point that even the outside world looks in and shakes their head and said, why? And why would we want to be a part of that? That's what we want to avoid. And so Paul says, look, here's some ways to try to avoid it. But every generation faces its own challenges of leadership because of the culture we're in and, and the expectations. Um, today, we also find a number of challenges for leaders. Just one of them is this. Um, People who study the fall of, of, of institutions, not just churches, but others, and why people don't trust them, they have said one of the issues that leaders fall into right now is this. Fame has replaced virtue. And by that, what they mean is, rather than, rather than being an organ, rather than being a leader where you are trying to bring about change and, and your position allows change both in yourself and in, the, and in the community you get to spend the time with, whether this is church, whether this is industry, whether this is politics, it's become more of a platform for your own brand and your own fame and to bring yourself into the forefront. So we all face these things. And all throughout history, there's always a new challenge. And so Paul today gets very practical and very personal with how to be the best leader that we can be. So you okay? Because we're used to Paul being Mr. Uber theological, like it bends your mind trying to understand Paul. Today he's Mr. Uber practical. So you okay we get real practical today? Good, because he's not just talking to pastors. See, here's the deal. He's also talking to every single one of us in this room. Because we don't have some separate set of qualifications for a pastor that are separate from those who are followers of Jesus as a whole. Because the reality of this, the reason the, these are qualifications for a pastor is because these are the expectations, the ideal for all followers of Jesus. It's just that pastors and leaders are held to a certain standard. But we're held to the standard because this is the ideal we are all called to live and to be a part of. And so, sorry, but he's not just talking to me. He's talking to all of us. So as you hear him speak today, hear what you can hear for you about how you live as a follower of Jesus every day. In chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts off by saying, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position, right? The position is honorable, not the seeking of power or prestige. The position is something honorable, to serve God. Verse 2. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. Pause. If you've been following the study guide, I don't need to go into this. It says um, a man whose life is above reproach. We've talked often in, in the study guide already about how, how Paul speaks in other places about leaders who are women, people, um, elders in the church, teachers in the church, those who led the church. And so here we're going to speak, especially because we're talking to all of us now, we're going to hear this as men and women, leaders as well as congregants, all those who are followers of Jesus. And so, he says, must be above reproach. This does not mean that they do not make mistakes because there's none of us who would ever be able to qualify. And so, now Paul gives 10 
categories of qualifications for those of us who want to be leaders, but more than that, 10 categories of qualifications for simply being followers of Jesus, to have a certain standard of life and living that we live up to. In verse 2, he says, he must be faithful to his wife. Some versions say faithful to his one wife. So the idea of not having more than one, one spouse is part of this. That was something of an issue in the day. But more than that, most commentators would say, no, what he's really saying is, look, be faithful to your marriage. That's what you're being called to. We probably have to spend a lot of time in emphasizing that particular point, but let's go a little bit broader than that. Yes, we must be faithful to our commitments. We must be faithful to our family. We are called to that. Um, but more than that is this, too often, it's easy for us to talk in this dualistic terms of like we live two lives. I have my personal life and I have my public life. And somehow we believe that these two, these public and personal lives don't touch. You guys, we have one life. We live one life and whatever you do in your private life impacts your public life. Whatever you do in public life also impacts your personal life. The two inform each other. It's one life you live and so each part of our lives matters. They both matter, whether people are seeing or not. The choices we make matter in the kingdom of God. Continuing on in verse 2, he says, he must exercise, and these three hold hands, must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. This idea of self-control, the idea that, look, we don't just live for what feels good, we live for what is good. We live because it matters to God. Um, I have a, a brand of athletic wear that I like to, I like to wear, it, and their, their byline is everything on purpose. And I think that's what one of the things Paul is getting at. As followers of Jesus, we live our life on purpose. It's not just a matter of what happens. Sure, we, we're open to what God leads. It doesn't mean there can't be spontaneity, but it means we live primarily with choices. And we choose. We live a life of self-control. We want to be certain kinds of people. He also calls us to live wisely. The word here is this idea of be, so, of be sober, which is not to be confused with be somber. Because yes, there are Christians who think that somehow the status and the level of your holiness is raised by the, how much you don't smile. That is not what he's saying here. We are talking about soberness, which the idea is wisdom, right? To live wisely. And why do we do these things? We want to have a good reputation. Not for our own sake. We want to have a good reputation for the cause for which we live. Right? This represents us as followers of Jesus. And he goes on to say, he must also enjoy having guests in his home. Now, the, the gift of, yeah, these, these move around all over, right? So buckle up because it, it doesn't always flow. But this idea of hospitality, that is one of the spiritual gifts. And so not everybody has the same hospitality gift. But there was also a practical part. See, in this culture at the time, hospitality was a part of culture, especially in a, in a society where people were spread out. And along the, the roads as people traveled, there weren't always roadside inns available. And if there did happen to be one, you may not necessarily want to stay there. They weren't always the most savory places. And Paul is saying, look, for the safety of people, you know, other, especially other Christians and those traveling, you know, provide a safe place, hospitality for them as they stay. Now, I'm not sure in today's society if Paul would say that you should always take strangers into your home, because that sounds like the plot line to a bad horror movie. So there are times, however, and I've known amazing Christians who there have been times when they have been called to take people into their home. They've been called to take family in. They've been talk, called to take friends in. Others that they've known who it was a moment in time, maybe for a short period or a longer period, when that person needed time, and it was someone they knew, and they took them in. There's moments for that. And that's something God opens the door for that maybe you're calling at that time to do. But let's think bigger than that. We live in a world today that is lonely, you guys. 
I would say almost weekly, every other week, I'm seeing a new study, a new article come out about how lonely people are. A study that comes out about how people are lonelier and have less close friends than they ever have before. And during COVID, it certainly hasn't helped. There are people who don't leave their house much. There are people who can't leave their house. As followers of Jesus, it's a chance for us to step into the lives of those who are lonely when we have the opportunity. Show hospitality. Be Jesus in their life. Help them have community as well. Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says, and he must be able to teach. Now, this is one of the practical things for pastors specifically because one of the things pastors are to do is teach, which means you need to have the spiritual gift of teaching. But it's bigger than that for all of us. Here's the reality. As followers of Jesus, we need to know what we believe. You may not be called to teach it, but you need to know what you believe. We don't want to be scripturally and biblically illiterate followers of Jesus because then all we're doing is following what somebody else has said. I don't ever want you guys to live and die on what I say. I want you to know what Jesus says. I want you to know what God says in his own word. I want you to hear it for yourself. And so there's that ability that we need to have. And then suddenly Paul switches gears completely again and he goes in verse 3. And he must not be a heavy drinker. Some of you are feeling very uncomfortable right now. Because he doesn't say, don't drink at all. Paul's not talking about health right here. Paul is talking about leadership here and what it does. Some versions say, don't be prone to drunkenness. Others say, don't be a heavy drinker, all right? So he's not talking about health. He's not saying, he's not here taking the moment to push not drinking. We're not going there right now. We're going to do what Paul is saying, and that is this. There's a reason for this, for this call to all of us. Now, we're not also going to try and define what drunk is, all right? That's kind of a moving target. Um, you know, it used to be that 0.1% alcohol level was legally drunk, then it was 0.08, and then some states have lowered it lower than that. If you're in a commercial vehicle, I believe it's 0.04%. If you're under 21, it's 0.01%. And if you lived some time ago in England when the water was bad and people drank basically ale, you weren't considered drunk until you had had more than eight pints of it. So we're not going to define what it is. The point is this. If you go back just to a, a verse when he's talking about the ability to live wisely, the ability to, make, um, to choose how you live and to have a good reputation, the idea is, look, be in control of your mental faculties. Be in the position where you're able to choose how you're living, the reputation you are having, the choices that you make, so you're making God-honoring choices. Okay? That's what he's trying to say in all parts of your life, whatever it may be. And then he goes on, and he says, and this is from the NIV rather than New Living Translation. The, NIV, the New Living splits up the word into two words in two separate sentences, and it gets confusing. So the first word he says here, and these both hold hands, the first is not violent but gentle, and the second word is not quarrelsome. So one is kind of the positive, not violent but gentle, and the opposite of that is be quarrelsome. So don't be quarrelsome, don't be violent, but gentle. Now, this idea of, of quarrelsome, the, another way of defining that would be the idea of contentious, right? Looking for a fight. Are you contentious? Don't be contentious, he's saying. And as I was studying this, it kind of hit me. I don't know if it, if it feels the same to you, but I feel like we live in a fog of contention all the time right now. I feel like the kind of the haze of contentiousness just hovers over society right now. And it's, it's oppressive and it's exhausting and I don't want any more of it. And yet that seems to be where we live in so many ways. There's always contentiousness. And Paul contrasts that here with the other word. 
which the word here can also, the other word could be translated as, uh, as gracious, as being living with yieldingness. Isn't that a cool word? Living with some yieldingness. And here's the, my favorite translation of this word, is to live with sweet reasonableness. Sit with that for a minute. To live with sweet reasonableness. Yes, please. I need a whole lot more of that. When I, when I read that word, <clears throat> excuse me, when I read that word, it was almost like someone had given me a glass of cold water. It's like, wow. Now, there's the antidote of that contentiousness that I feel just in the air is this idea of sweet reasonableness. And I don't know what your personal feed sounds like, what's personally feeding you at all times into your brain, whether, what conversations we're having, what you're thinking about, what you're reading, what you're hearing, what you're listening to, what you're watching. Is it more contentious? Is it more on the line of sweet reasonableness? And if you find that your personal feed is always contentious, you may need to change your feed. Because as followers of Jesus, we need to be the ones who bring more sweet reasonableness into this world because if we can't, who's going to do it? Because that's the way Jesus lived. You know, this, this, think about what it means to be contentious versus sweet reasonableness. Contentiousness wants to be right. Sweet reasonableness looks for understanding. Contentiousness wants to win. Sweet reasonableness wants resolution. Contentiousness sees only an enemy. Sweet reasonableness sees another child of God who is deeply loved. And contentiousness nails to a cross, while sweet reasonableness says, Father, forgive them. We need to be those people because we're followers of the God of sweet reasonableness. And I think a way for us maybe to get there is to make sure we are literate of the life of Jesus as well. And I would love, let me challenge you with this, if you have never done this before. I would love for you to take a great study Bible, something like the Life Application Bible, or, but if you don't have that and you don't want to buy one, just take your Bible. All right, take your version. In a study Bible, you can usually find this at the back. Otherwise, I bet you can Google it and find it. <coughs> Excuse me, I want you to find, I want you to find a chronological list of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where it takes the stories of Jesus and it places them across the columns chronologically throughout his life. And I want you to go and read the story of Jesus' life, every story chronologically. Now, the same story is in one, as in two, three, or four books. Just read it in one. But start at the beginning and read the story of Jesus chronologically, and it will change your world. Jesus is often so much more will always be so much more than what we picture him. And we don't want to be illiterate of the God we follow. And what we find so often is that as we look at the life of Jesus, the ones who he has the strongest words for are the ones who are not bringing sweet reasonableness into this world. And the ones who need it most, we find Jesus bringing that to them and offering them that grace, that yieldingness, what it is that they need. We need to be those people because this world needs it bad. Then in verse 3, Paul switches gears again, and he says, and you must not love money. Now, we're going to talk more about money later on in the book, but for right now, he's not saying that money is bad. He's not saying money is bad. 
What he is saying is, look, you have to have a priority here. You must have, money must take its proper place. It was Martin Luther, I believe, who said, every Christian needs to have three conversions. He said, first of all, we need a conversion of the mind to understand our God and salvation and what he's done for us. Secondly, we need to have a conversion of the heart to accept Jesus as our Savior. And then we need a third conversion, he says. We need a conversion of our pocketbook. Because so often in practical, in the practical means, that's what can get in the way of us truly following. It, it's just a reality. And Paul says, look, you can't love money because it messes up your priorities. Maybe this is a way to see it. Look, as a matter of priority, is money your priority or is money what allows you to achieve the priorities God has given you? Not worldly priorities, God priorities. What it is we are called to as children of God, as followers of Jesus. If money is what enables you to do that, then you're in a good place. If money is what drives the decisions you make, you will find yourself in a bad place. Again, money itself is not bad. We, we have to have it. We couldn't do most of what we need to do in this community at Crosswalk if it wasn't for being able to have the funds to do it. It's just a reality. But money isn't enough, and it can't be the priority. The work of God is, and the money serves that. And so we must have a conversion of our pocketbooks as well, especially in leadership where we get in bad places. And then in verse 4, Paul goes on and he says, He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? And I'm so glad my daughter is here right now. So, just, just kidding, honey. Love you. Um, because here's the, here's the reality. Look, we've got to be super careful with this one. Super careful, because I've seen this one misused. Growing up, I remember some of the pastor's kids, it was almost like they lived in fear because it was as if sometimes the parents felt like their reputation as a church leader rested on their child. Folks, that's too heavy. That's not their job, right? There, there are no perfect kids. Kids, you're welcome. There are no perfect kids. And here's the thing. It can't mean you have perfect kids because if we said to be qualified as a leader as, or as a follower of Jesus, we had to have perfect kids, guess what? God wouldn't qualify because we've all turned away from God. We've all done our own thing. Jesus himself had Judas who betrayed him. He had Peter who denied him. He had followers who ran away when he needed him most. It can't mean that, that our kids have to be perfect or meet some standard in order for us to qualify. I think it puts more onus on us as parents of what kind of parents we are going to be. Because, look, look, not gonna have perfect kids, but we can't force our kids into, into respect. Sure, you can force um, obedience. You can't force respect. Respect is something that's earned. Respect is something that's learned, right? And so we have to be able, we have to, be, able to, to be parents like Jesus' parents to us. He grows us with his love. He gives us instruction. He gives us accountability. And he shows us his grace. That's what Jesus does. And I think if we live that way, we will have families who we have respect for each other because we're showing respect both ways. It doesn't mean your kids will be perfect, and guess what? You're not going to be a perfect parent. But you're going to be living out the way that Jesus lives out his teaching, his parenting of us. And so I think if we can get there, we're in a much better place. Here's the other thing. Um, as, a, as doing the work of God, whether you're a church leader, 
um, officially or whether you, most of us, by the way, are leaders in some part of our lives, whether it's in the church, paid or unpaid, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your community. And here's the thing. So often when we're, when we're working for church, it's too easy to think that your work in church is your kingdom work. Yes, church work is kingdom work, but your family is also your kingdom work. Your, your job is also your kingdom work. Your personal health is your kingdom work. Your free time is your kingdom work. Your personal relationship with Jesus is your kingdom work. It's all kingdom work. So don't set kingdom work as priority above your family because they're kingdom work as well. In verse six, Paul goes on, he says, look, a church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Make sure if you're taking positions of leadership, take positions you feel like you are, in a, you are in a relationship with Jesus where you're mature enough to take it, right? Now, he may push you at times, and that's okay. If he's pushing, follow where he leads, but make sure you're not going beyond what you are prepared to take. I appreciate that with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as far as when it comes to pastoral ministry, that they want to make sure that you aren't just thrown in. They want you to be prepared. They want you to have four years of an undergraduate degree in pastoral ministry. They want you to have two years of seminary, which is actually nine quarters of seminary of practical and theological training. They want you to have training in externship and an internship under people who have pastored for years, who are experienced in, and successful in doing God's work, to learn from them before you are on your own. We need to practice that kind of mentorship in our own lives, right? Mentor each other. Those of us who've been around longer, help those who are new, not because they're, they're less valuable or they don't know how to do things, but because we all have something we can learn. And we all need to find people who have been around longer to learn from as well. That way we, we can keep everything in proper perspective and we don't fall because we weren't ready for it. And then in verse 7 he says, also people outside the church must speak well of the leader and all of us really. So that we will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Because what's the devil's trap? He loves to be able to have churches, institutions, pastors fall to bring on disregard for God's work and his people and Jesus himself, right? So we don't want to fall into that trap. And so Paul then finishes up with these words. We're going to jump to 14 because what Paul says, he says, look, I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, because Paul loved the Ephesian church. He wanted to be there, but he wasn't sure how this was going to go. He had already been arrested once. He was now free. But he says, I'm, I hope to be with you soon so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. Not just in the house of God, how we conduct ourselves in the household of God, in the community of God, among the people of God. This is how we live. This is how we conduct ourselves. This is how we are called to be as his followers. This is what we do. He says, because this is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And when, when Paul says this in Ephesus, immediately the people would have thought of the temple of Artemis, right? They would have thought of this temple with its 160-foot high columns, right? Holding up this massive marble roof. And in the same way, he says, look, as a church, we are called to hold up this truth in the world. And what is this truth? Well, John Stott compares it this way. He says, look, just so the church holds the truth a lot so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as the pillars lift up the building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, 
but to advertise and display the truth. And so what is this truth? What is this truth that we are called to hold up? What is this truth that is so important that it's worth all the effort and all the, the, all the need for us to live in the way Paul has just called us to live? What is this truth that we need to hold up with every part of our lives, private and public? What is this truth? Well, Paul doesn't hesitate to tell us what this truth is because it's a truth that Paul is willing to live for and a truth that Paul is willing to die for. And in fact, he's about to be arrested again and he will die a martyr for this truth. And he wants you to know what this truth is we live for. And in verse 16, he says, without question, this, this is the great mystery, the great truth of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. This truth, this truth that we want to honor with our lives, this truth that we live to share, this truth that we make all the effort to live for and to honor and to share with the world, this truth is Jesus. He's the only one worth living for, the only one worth dying for. And he is the one we will give anything to honor through our lives. And that is our calling today. Let's pray. Jesus, we are humbled. We are humbled to be called followers of Jesus. And Jesus, because we are your followers, because you mean everything to us, because you have done everything for us, we want to live lives that honor you, not to be saved, but because you have saved us. We want to live lives that honor you because we want the world to fall in love with you. We want the world to see who you truly are. And we don't want to be a stumbling block that gets in their way. And Jesus, we want to be your love, not just to the world, but to each other. Jesus, we want to live out your call of sweet reasonableness to a world of contention. We want to be people who bring your hope and your love and your grace. And we need you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand in this worship again.